Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking about the decision of the Commission on the Freedom Convoy uh, that Justin Trudeau actually did, in fact, meet the standard of, uh, of national emergency uh, to implement the Emergency Measures Act, which resulted in the crackdown on the Freedom Convoy that we've discussed previously on this podcast. And of course, uh, there's nobody better to discuss that with than Andrew Lawden, the author of the definitive book on the Freedom Convoy called simply The Freedom Convoy, Three Weeks That Shook the World. That book can be purchased online, of course, at Amazon. It was published by Sutherland House. We've had him on in the past to talk about the book, and it really is worth the read if you want to get the inside story of how all of this went down. And so to discuss the latest update on this ongoing Canadian saga, here is is Andrew Lawden of True North and author of The Freedom Convoy. All right, Andrew, last time we uh, we had you on, we talked a lot about your book, The Freedom Convoy, and now there's an update with the uh, Freedom Commission releasing its findings and saying that uh, Justin Trudeau met the standard for the Emergency Measures Act, something that not even all of his MPs thought he'd met. So you've been following this in detail, tweeting about it, reporting on it. And instead of wrapping my head around it, I thought I would just have you on and discuss. Uh, first of all, how did the commission reach this conclusion? So they had weeks and weeks and weeks back in the fall of, of testimony and they were just long, grueling days in which you had for, in some cases, you know, 11, 12 hours, uh, people that were uh, talking about every dimension of this, even things that had nothing to do with the legality of the Emergencies Act. And ultimately, you had written submissions on top of that. And then one guy, uh, Commissioner Paul Rouleau, goes back, takes it all in, deliberates for a couple of months and comes out with this report, which effectively defends the use of the Emergencies Act. But, and I, I don't want to say that it was not an unequivocal and resounding defense of Justin Trudeau's decision, but it was very close to the edge. And, and he said, even in his opening remarks, that another reasonable person could look at the same evidence and come to a different conclusion than he did. So, so it wasn't a slam dunk in that sense. So looking at all the testimony that came before the commission, like there was a couple of points where I thought, okay, uh, they're definitely going to rule that the Emergency Measures Act was an overreach, especially when you had um, the seeming disagreement between various law enforcement agencies as to what exactly the prime minister was told when he was making his decision. Kind of walk us through that. What was your take hearing that testimony? Which testimony specifically? Well, there was CSIS and then there was what um, the police, uh, the, the chief of police had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I, I would say, and, and this sort of is, was my own takeaway near the end of the hearings, was that the debate entirely came down to what was a very specific debate over the interpretation of one section of one piece of legislation, which was the, the CSIS Act, which defines threats to the security of Canada for the purposes of the Emergencies Act. And, and when the debate came down to what I said was legal gymnastics, I felt that was just an example of Justin Trudeau losing because the government didn't produce this fact scenario that supported this idea of a national emergency they were debating the the technicalities of the law now 
I guess they sufficiently debated those and and convinced the commissioner. But I, I think that the testimony was interesting because that the Emergencies Act has several thresholds that I would say none of them were met. And even if a couple of the lower ones were met, it failed in the higher ones. And, and I can get into specifics there is that it requires there to be a threat to the security of Canada that causes an emergency that is national in proportion. And it also requires this is something that cannot be dealt with by any other existing laws. And what we heard from police uh, witnesses who testified was that they had all of these other tools at this dispo at their disposal, and they were had plans, they were working on plans. And, and it was really incompetence that sidelined them more than the lack of legal tools available. Now, one of the things that is inclined to make people cynical is is that the whole thing, when it, in, in terms of the government reaction and the police reaction, has led itself to cynicism in the first place. And one of the things I think your book does a good job of laying out is, is a timeline for when the, when the protesters or when the convoy leaders were meeting with the cops, when the cops were saying, go ahead and do this, but then later saying, hey, we didn't say that. Like, it's all kind of a confusing muddle, exacerbated by the fact that there weren't really any convoy leaders, but also there were in some other sense, like there was people that were recognized as leaders, but hadn't really been appointed as such necessarily. Does that confusion lend itself to this final decision or does this strike you as sort of just a commission backing the current prime minister? I, I think it did. And, and it, in a way, you know, the leaders of the convoy, such as they were, saw it as being a, a feature and not a bug that they had no ringleader, that there was no one in charge, that this wasn't a, a hierarchy. But it also, at the same time, became one of the leading criticisms, because when convoy organizers were saying, yeah, we were sitting down, we were engaging with police, we had a plan to move trucks away, we were trying to de-escalate. Uh, really, what happened is all of the other side looks and say, well, hang on, you said there was no leader. You said there was no one in charge. So how can you say that all of these things were were good? And the response to that that people like Tamara Leach gave and, and Keith Wilson, the lawyer for the convoy, was that, yeah, but we had influence. We had you know social capital and moral capital with them. So we were able to persuade them to do things. The issue is that we couldn't force them. But that actually became something the commissioner latched onto, that this really wasn't a movement that had a leader in the sense of what you'd expect from an organization. I'm interested in that point because I want to be as fair as possible here before I ask you some more scorching questions just because I think the I think it's kind of BS. I agree with you that the threshold wasn't met and there was certain parts of this that just sort of stink to me. But to give as much credit as sort of humanly possible, right? Uh, you and I were both there the last weekend um, of the convoy or they didn't quite make it to the weekend. Um, but the, the last couple of days, and I remember there's a, you know, a huge semi down near the Supreme court where all the leaders would meet and they'd have all these meetings in it. And I was talking to a few of the leaders, um, about what was going on. One of the discussions being had was, you know, what if the cops are going to move anyways, now is actually a good time to pull out on your own terms and kind of announce that you're going to do a, you know, a victory lap back across the country, own the narrative, uh, deny Justin Trudeau the headline he needed, make him fall flat on his face by, you know, showing how ridiculous it was to declare the Emergency Measures Act. But a couple of them told me that even though they were sympathetic to that idea, 
there was just no ability to rally a large number of people into doing that. And that that moral influence and their recognizable sort of uh, faces and sort of moral authority wouldn't actually have been enough to budge a lot of people. And when I was walking up and down to sort of interviewing people, the, the hold the line slogan that was being passed sort of from truck to truck and, uh, and it was definitely present in all the big crowds that were facing off with the cops down by the Chateau Laurier. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that even if the leaders had pulled out a decent chunk of the convoy would have stayed because at that point they were being buttressed by hundreds of people online supporters pouring into town every weekend with food and cards and stuff like that. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think you're right. And and when I talk about those persuasion abilities, I, I should put a preface there that you can't make people do things they don't want to do on their own. And, and I think that the approach that Tamara Leach and uh, Keith Wilson and all of these folks like Tom Morazzo were making when they were negotiating the reconfiguration of trucks and, and just for context, this was moving the trucks off of residential streets, concentrate them on Wellington Street and whatever wouldn't fit, bring them out of town. This was the deal they had reached with the city of Ottawa and, and we're in the progress process of, of fulfilling. But that is an inherent agreement that you could sell to truckers as being something that ensures the longevity of the protest. So you can say, hey, I think you should move off this street because this way we'll concentrate our efforts on the federal government and it'll give us a bit of a buffer against criticism. So do, does that same persuasive ability translate to, hey, guys, you should leave, you should go home. And I would concede probably not, because in that case, the argument you're using is is one that is probably going to go up against what people have been talking about for three weeks, which is the we're not leaving until every last mandate is gone. So how should a balanced and reasonable but sympathetic to the convoy person read these findings? Because I'm sure yours is too, but my social media feeds or just blowing up, you know, all, all sort of the regular rhetoric about tyranny and what have you, but also just sort of a deep and profound cynicism that after all of that testimony, after it seemed clear to many of us that the bar had not been reached, especially considering the last time the Emergency Measures Act or the War Measures Act had been used, um, they just kind of went ahead with it anyways. What is the reasonable but sympathetic view, if you will? Well, I, I think first off, people needed to lower expectations about the commission itself in, in that even if the commissioner had come out with a scathing indictment of the use of the Emergencies Act, he indicted the premise on which the Emergencies Act was deployed, the way it was employed, how it was used, it wouldn't have actually done anything. And, and Justin Trudeau would have been able to have essentially the same press conference he did having been vindicated and say, well, yeah, we accept the report and this is why we did it. And there are lessons that we've learned and we move on and carry forward and, and Kuma now let me go and do my my best Al Jolson impersonation. And the thing about that is that that would have been, I think, an even more infuriating result because it would have been something that indicated that there was something wrong with this, but it wouldn't have actually uh, been accompanied by by any action. So I think that people needed to have lowered their expectations before the report. And and look at the fact that there are many different fronts on which this battle is being waged. You've got the commission, you've got uh, court cases, you also have uh, on top of that, I think, the political discussion that, that's going. And, and I'm so glad to see conservative leader Pierre Polyev 
actually not buckle on this like I think former conservative leaders would have. And they would have said, well, you know, we accept the findings of the report and this was an unfortunate situation, but it's it was what needed. No, he came out and said, listen, the, the only emergency here was the one that Justin Trudeau created. Well, and I think that's true. And and so one of the things that I think the, these findings do is is make a, a decent percentage of the population, right? The the prime minister lost the popular vote last time around, and I think the time of, time before too, is to create the sort of deep cynicism that he can more or less do whatever he wants, and he seems to get away with it, right? He's got, you know, three three uh, recognized ethics violations thus far. In fact. Uh, his government has actually been advised to implement ethics training because they're so sloppy and they get things wrong so frequently that that's apparently necessary. Um, and then you've got this where he does implement um, Emergency Measures Act, last implemented for, you know, FLQ terrorist activity in Quebec. Um, I have no idea who ordered horses to be used on the last day, but regardless of how well behaved the, the police were in other instances, that seems pretty ridiculous. And it, it kind of seems to a lot of people like Justin Trudeau at this stage, like he's he's untouchable, that he can do whatever he wants, that he can fire cabinet ministers, that he can get embroiled in scandals, but nothing happens. Yeah, and I think that was, for example, he at his press conference on uh, whatever day it was, Friday, apologized for calling the trucker protesters a fringe minority with unacceptable views. This was a comment he made before the trucks had even arrived in Ottawa. He was swiftly condemned for it. It emboldened the protesters. It was really his basket of deplorables moment, his bitter clingers moment. And he has had months and months and months pushing now to a year to recant that he's been asked about it a number of occasions he's been criticized and it's only now that in that report from commissioner Rouleau, they talk about justin trudeau's rhetoric inflaming things that he's like well you know i wish i had chosen different words so there is not a tendency towards accountability or contrition from this particular prime minister one of the uh, the things with regards to accountability that I, I think kind of needs to be part of the the sort of the post convoy discussion is it's very very easy for people to write off the convoy based on a handful of the the more conspiratorial aspects of it. You address those in your book. Anybody who walked up and down Wellington at any point would have read plenty of shall we say, interesting signs with interesting perspectives on them. But one of the findings that, that seems to really buttress the entire con uh, convoy's opposition to mandates is, is the idea that the vaccination does not, in fact, protect from transmission. And Trudeau ran an entire election on demonizing a portion of the population and defending mandates based on this idea that they did prevent transmission and that, you know, the, 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 the unclean couldn't sit next to the clean on a plane or a train, you know, and he actually worked himself up into quite a lather when he was screaming about these sorts of things. Like he usually only gets that worked up when he's talking about issues like abortion, but there hasn't been any sort of admission forthcoming whatsoever uh, that, okay, we really got it wrong on this and these mandates that basically triggered the convoy to begin with that kept people from the bedsides of dying relatives. Like the most horrific aspects of these policies, which could only be justified by the most extreme moral danger to the, the lives of other people, is the one thing that came down. And there seems to have been no commentary on that. What's your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, Matt Strauss, who is the acting medical officer of health over in, in Haldeman, Norfolk in Ontario, he had uh, tweeted something, I think it was just yesterday or two days ago about, uh, you know, a year ago, when people were talking about acquired immunity and natural immunity, uh, they were being condemned by the Surgeon General. And now you've got studies and uh, mainstream outlets that are talking about, well, actually, you know, uh, acquired immunity is stronger than vaccine immunity. So I, the, the, the story throughout the pandemic has been that yesterday's conspiracy theory and misinformation is today's government press release. And and in spite of that, there still hasn't been this realization or, or this public admission from people that maybe we were too swift to condemn people who, even if they no, don't end up being right, had a reason to be skeptical early on. And, and you know, I, I talked to a number of people involved in the convoy. And I, I had said that, you know, this was an anti-mandate protest. It wasn't an anti-vaccine protest. There were people that were vaccinated there. There were people that were unvaccinated. They just didn't care about each other's status like people everywhere else in the country did. And and I had one woman who interviewed me not that long ago, a, a podcaster, a former PPC candidate who said, well, actually, no, it was anti-vaccine. You know, we are anti-vaccine. We need to tell people we are. I said, I said, that may have been the story for you. And if you want to raise those concerns, I'm a supporter of free speech you have every right to do it but that actually wasn't the story of the convoy it, it was that they wanted to move beyond this world in which that measured your worth as a human being how many boosters you had had at a particular point in time well exactly and i just wonder if there ever will be any discussion about what actually got wrong because there has been very little accountability on this issue at all except for the most conservative premier in the country jason kenny uh, getting kicked out. We'll find out very soon what impact that has. But Doug Ford comes in with a big majority with virtually no discussion, mainly because I think his sort of Oshock's attitude inoculated him from too much backlash over some of his policies. Um, Justin Trudeau, as we already discussed, seems to be really getting away with it. But when you're looking at the legacy of the convoy coming up to, you know, the first anniversary, I don't think you can discuss the legacy of it without pointing out that they were right on one really key thing that, you know, I, I was there. I, I saw plenty of jackasses and there was plenty of morons who were kind of really getting in the cops faces and hoping to get into a big fight. But the key premise of the whole thing, which, as you just pointed out, as mandates was proven to be accurate based on on research that has come out since then. And so why does why is Trudeau less crazy for running around the country frothing at the mouth about not being able to sit and in on the same plane as people? And the and the convoy sort of gets written off as fringe, even if he regrets that particular word, when on the key issue at at play here, they were correct. Yeah, because it's not right unless the right people reach the conclusion, and it's not right until that point. So if someone who is holding a Canadian flag and honking a horn says masks don't work, that is misinformation. When someone wearing a lab coat says the same thing three days later, uh, we all need to defer and listen and bow and you know praise Fauci and all that. And and I think this is the, the big problem, is that we, we have literally institutionalized the idea of appeal to authority, which was like one of the first laws logical things I learned not to do when I started learning about philosophy and logic. It was, you know, don't appeal to authority, but now we, we have made that as a matter of protocol, the only thing you're allowed to do. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of bizarre. Do you think that now, now when we see the, the sort of the, 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 the this commission and these findings and the emergency measures act, which is, which is for those listeners uh, who don't realize it, an incredibly serious and dramatic thing to do. 
Um, do you think there will be any accountability at all for the leaders who suppressed dissent over things like mandates now that we know that on those specific issues, at least, they were wrong? I hope so, although I, I'm not optimistic. And, and if you've paid close attention, you'll, you'll have noticed in the last few months, there's been this shift towards this idea of pandemic amnesty. It was you talked about in a New Yorker piece, and it's now become part of a, a broader discussion of maybe we all just take a mulligan, we all just give each other a pass and we move on and kind of forget the last three years, which was terrible for everyone happened. And, and the problem with that is that it's conveniently being championed by the people that have the most to lose if we do start looking back. And if we do do start holding people accountable. And if you look back and, and find that, wow, you actually did uh, silence debate, you silenced uh, dissent, you uh, decided to prevent people from gathering with their family members. And, and I don't think a lot of people are willing to give folks a pass, but it's about whether governments will do that. And, and I think the problem we have is that Virtually every government, actually not virtually, every government in this country went along with it. And there was little daylight between what was happening in so-called rock-ribbed conservative provinces like Alberta under Jason Kenney and NDP provinces under British Columbia. And in fact, I, I, I would actually take British Columbia over Alberta if you look at the uh, lockdowns and, and restrictions uh, and at the height of things. But I think the problem with that is that everyone's invested in this. So uh, when you've got but the conservative premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, talking about how he stands shoulder to shoulder with Justin Trudeau. Uh, it's very difficult to find anyone who's going to come in there and demand accountability. And, and even Danielle Smith, like she's coming in. I think she's in the right frame of mind on these things, but she couldn't have a full investigation without taking aim at half the people who are now sitting in her cabinet. No, I know. And that's really interesting because I understand and I'm very sympathetic to the idea that a lot of premiers were basically told point blank by a lot of doctors. Ford said this as much at press conferences, right? That like an unbelievable number of people are, are going to die if you're not going to do X, etc. What I'm frustrated by is that as new facts come in, like the facts on transmission, for example, that none of them actually have the guts or the nether regions to come out and say, hey, here's where we got this wrong. Here's the information that we were working with. Because it that's where I think things move to unforgivable where it's like yeah no everybody was very very miserable but nobody gets to suffer and because it, like in ontario for example right um basically ford wasn't in the driver's seat he just accepted whatever the bureaucracy handled him handed him and the bureaucracy isn't elected so it's there's almost this inability to get accountability for anything that happened even if you know you know your father died alone in a hospital and you weren't allowed to see him yeah, and I, I think that the question that a lot of people should be asking is, how did you reach that conclusion? Because it, that, I think that's one of the ways you could maybe not exonerate yourself, but you could start to at least attract some sympathy if you tell people how you reached a conclusion in a particular point. And, and I think that the problem with opening up that box is that people will find how thin the evidence was and how they were making things up when they said the vaccine prevented transmission, for example. They didn't have any studies they were leaning on. Pfizer wasn't testing that. That was never actually part of the vaccine company's promise to governments. It was just something that government leaders said because they wanted to get buy-in. And when they weren't getting the buy-in they wanted, they implement these vaccine mandates, which are predicated on the idea the vaccine stopped transmission. Because if, if the, the uh, consequences of your decision are entirely isolated to you, there is no basis for the government to start mandating these as a condition for accessing public spaces. So uh, the problem 
problem with looking at that in depth is that governments will have to account for the fact that they just didn't have the evidence when they made the claim. Well, and that's that is the really damning part of it, because there's still differing views on the personal efficacy and safety that came with taking it. But the fact that the vaccine companies never told the government that they prevented transmission and yet the government used that as the basis to do this to society is just really mind boggling because if it had been take this, if you want protection, don't take it. If you don't, since transmission isn't, isn't, isn't a part of this, it doesn't really matter. That would have eliminated so much of the conflict and so much of, of, of the pain of the, the so-called collateral pain and suffering that happened as a result. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and I don't know, how I don't know what the next step forward is because you have to look at where the weak link is and, and where you're most likely able to exact some sort of reckoning here. And, and, you know, like I said, the public order emergency commission was, was one, it was not the be all and end all. I, I don't have a lot of optimism in the courts in Canada about this. And I, I don't have a lot of optimism in the political process in Canada for bringing it out. I, I think it will probably come from another country when you start having inquiries being done. Uh, some European members of parliament have actually brought, you know, executives of these pharmaceutical companies uh, forward and, and put questions to them. And, and that was, actually one of the the first places where Pfizer was talking about how the vaccines didn't prevent transmission. It was uh, being questioned on a, a European parliamentary committee. So I think we need to make this a global fight, certainly for aspects of that, because uh, it really was I think a, a global assault on freedoms that was coming from multiple countries and multiple leaders around the world. One of the final things I kind of wanted to discuss with you is we're looking now at, at this decision, which may be looked at um, by judges when they're dealing with some of, of those convoy leaders, for lack of a better word, who are still embroiled in judicial proceedings. At about a year out from the convoy, what sort of legal consequences are some of the key figures still facing? So you had, uh, by the city of Ottawa, or sorry, by Ottawa police, 533 charges that were laid in connection to the convoy, ranging from assault to most of them were mischief, obstruction, stuff like that. And and I, a few of those have already been dropped or withdrawn or, or stayed, uh, depending on the case. Uh, you have the big fish, though, and, and I think that's where we need to look. People like Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, uh, the most uh, vocal and visible faces of the convoy, uh, both of whom served jail time. Tamara Leach has been arrested, released, re-arrested, re-released. And those cases are still proceeding. And I think this is the government trying to make an example of them. So uh, these are the ones that are, are going to be the big ones to watch because uh, these two as individuals have actually it's hard, very hard to look at what they've done and even what the Crown is saying they've done and find any evidence of criminality in there. So what possible impl implications could this decision have for their cases? Because I, when I saw that decision, I was like, well, in, in their judicial proceedings, and I don't know exactly how this works, so let me know if I have this wrong. Uh, it seems like, okay, if they, if they were part of something that was so seriously horrifying that the Emergency Measures Act was actually warranted, does that impact how the judges treat their individual cases or does it have no bearing on it at all? 
So I legally, I don't know. I, I don't know if there is some, because I know that the commissioner made the point of saying that he was not making a criminal or civil finding. So, but I don't know if this report can be a very substantive and weighty piece of evidence in a, a civil case. And, and I'll give you one example of that in constitutional cases in Canada, overwhelmingly, when you make a claim that a charter right has been violated, uh, like your right to freedom of assembly or freedom of speech, um, the government or the court will say, well, yes, your right was uh, your rights were infringed, but the government was justified because it was a reasonable and justifiable limit in a demonstrably or uh, I forget the exact wording of it right now. But see, uh, section one of the charter, which says uh, that all freedoms are subject to reasonable limits as may be justified. There we go in a free, free and democratic society. Uh, so could this report be used as evidence by the government to say, well, here is the justification for our limits. This was a commission has found a national emergency. And, and if that's the defense, then I'm not optimistic that these court cases will, on constitutional grounds anyway, succeed. Yeah, I know. That's the, the primary concern. Is there anything else we should be watching as we, we hit the one-year anniversary of the convoy? I think you need to watch what happens to the Canadian public sentiment on this, because the, the story I've told a couple of times, I, I was on a kick a few months ago where I was reading about the Upper Canada Rebellion and uh, William Lyon Mackenzie's uh, attempt to overthrow the government. And it actually led to some, some quite significant changes in the country, like uh, responsible government and eventually confederation. And, and William Lyon Mackenzie went from being a traitor to eventually a member of parliament. And, and I think that sometimes in history, acts can be very much reframed and recast as people start to get a bigger sense of, of the picture and what was happening. And, and you take a look at the FLQ crisis and Pierre Trudeau's invocation of the War Measures Act. Uh, over time, I think people have become more and more skeptical of that decision. Uh, now, it's still contentious. I don't want to say there's a, a consensus on either side. But I think with this, the further we get from it, the bigger the picture, people will start to see that the government opened a box that it really ought not to have opened. Opened. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Andrew Lawton, a journalist and fellow with the True North Center and author of The Freedom Convoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you like this show, you can head over to lifesitenews.com, click on the podcast tab. You'll find our podcast there and you can get our show wherever you get your content. Thanks again so much for listening. Hope you'll join us again next week.